Namo tassa bhagavato arhanto samasambo dasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arhanto samasambo dasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arhanto samasambo dasa. So tonight, um, I'd like to um, talk about going home. But I'm loving this wind. This is the air element. Just as the breath comes in and out, the wind blows. Hmm. So Hafiz says, now that all your worry has proved to be such an unlucrative business, why don't you just find another job? <laughs> Not so easy. So tomorrow we're going home. Home brings up a lot of feelings. Remember, Dorothy, all you have to do is click your heels three times and say, I want to go home. I want to go home. I want to go home. But I want to ask you all, where is your home? I I mean it, really. Someone's pointing to her heart. Yeah. Where is your home? And when you're at home, what does it feel like? Now, you don't necessarily have to call back to me, but just to reflect inside you, what does it feel like when you are home? What does it feel like in your body? What does it feel like in your mind and heart? when you're home. Rumi, mischievous Rumi, says in his poem, Let's Go Home. He says, late and starting to rain, it's time to go home. We've long... Wandered long enough in empty buildings, I know it's tempting to stay and meet those new people. I know it's even more sensible to spend the night here with them, but I want to go home. We've seen enough beautiful places with signs on them saying, this is God's house. That's seeing the grain like the ants do without the work of harvesting. Let's leave the grazing to cows and go to where we know what everyone really intends, where we can walk around without any clothes on. Where we can walk without any clothes on. A certain sense of being safe, being real, being home. Thich Nhat Hanh speaks about our true home is in the present moment. To live in the present moment is a miracle. The miracle, perhaps, is not to walk on water. The miracle is to walk on the green earth and be in the present moment. There are times, however, when we don't feel alone, or at home, I should say. We feel alone. We don't feel at home. Native Americans talk about this in a 
poem called Lost, and it says that a Native American elder was asked, what shall we do if we get lost? The elder said, stand still. The trees before you and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is a place called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger, both asking to know and to be known. Listen. The forest whispers, I have made this place. You can leave and return once again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven, and no two branches are the same to a wren. If what a tree or a branch does is lost on you, then you are truly lost. So stand still and listen. The forest knows where you are. Let it find you. Wherever you are is a place called here. The Buddha discovered long ago, over 2,500 years ago, about coming home to freedom. So when we speak of home, yes, we have our physical address in the place we live with our families, our friends, or by ourselves. But I also want to just speak about the deeper meaning of being home home into our being, home into wisdom, home into the great heart. And I trust that a number of you know the story of the Buddha, but I want to just share a little bit about it, because it, to me it also is a story about coming home. And before the Buddha became the Buddha, his name was known as Siddhartha Gautama, and he was brought up in a very beautiful palace. His father was a king, And it was hoped that one day Siddhartha Gautama would become a king. And he lived a very sheltered life. But he also got educated in all of the um, different disciplines and all of the times and so forth. He had everything that everyone would want. He, we had his own version of an iPhone and an iPod and latest this and that. Everything seemed to be going fine, destined to become a great king. And in his 29th year, for some very interesting reason, not quite sure how it happened, but he ventured outside of his palace grounds with his uh, charioteersman, Chana, for an outing. And it's said that in these outings that they went on, that Siddhartha came across four powerful messengers. And the first messenger was that he came across someone that was really old. And so Siddhartha asked Chana, who is this person? Because this is a person that gets old. If you live long enough, you get old. No one can escape from getting old, Chana said. And Siddhartha, living in a very sheltered palace, 
never saw an old person before, and this was really um, shook him up. Another outing, Siddhartha came across with Chana, a very ill person, very, very ill, lying on the road with very ill. And Siddhartha said, what's going on here? And Chana said, this is a person that's ill. Surely everyone, sooner or later, will get ill. This also kind of very much upset Siddhartha. And the third messenger, you can probably guess, if you didn't know, is that he came across a dead body. This was very disturbing when Siddhartha realized, after 29 years of living on the planet, being in a sheltered life, that there is death and that no one can escape from death. For many years, I always considered this story to be more mythological. But then I began to reflect on my own life and my own kind of, um, I may have mentioned this the other night, there's a Hindu proverb that thinks everyone else is going to die but not me. And, And the amount of years that I've lived in denial of my own death and aging and illness, I'm not, I mean, I'm just trying to really get it now at 55. And, you know, he got it at the age of 29. Not bad. So when he realized the inevitability of illness and aging and death, he developed that consciousness that I had talked about the other night, some vega, some vega, this consciousness, this awareness that the understanding that death and illness can come at any time and it catapults one into a state of spiritual urgency to want to practice, to try to understand the meaning of life. The last messenger that the Siddhartha Gautama met was a person that he had never seen before. This was a wandering mendicant, a samana, a holy person. And their look and the way that they walked and the robes, even though they were kind of rag robes, just the way this person locked and the feeling that they admitted. Siddhartha had never met anyone like this person before and inquired, who's this? And he was... uh, amazed to find out this is a person who's dedicated towards the understanding life. And so the story goes, as you know, that Siddhartha um, decided that this is what he wanted to do. He wanted to leave the palace. He didn't care about becoming a king. And it said that his father begged him as he was preparing to leave the palace, don't leave. And Siddhartha said, well, if you can promise me three things, grant me three things, father, I will stay. And being a great king the Bill Gates of his time. No doubt I can do anything. And so Siddhartha said, prevent me from getting old, prevent me from getting sick, prevent me from dying. King was defeated. But the king, not wanting to give up too easily, said, listen, please stay, please stay. And Siddhartha said, grant me two wishes. King got very excited again. Two, I can surely do that. Prevent me from getting old. Prevent me from dying. King was defeated again. But again the king for a third time begging his son, don't leave, please. And Siddhartha said, okay, prevent me one thing. Give me one thing, I should say. The king got very excited, some hope again. I can do one thing. I'm rich. And of course, Siddhartha said, prevent me from dying. The king, of course, couldn't do that, and Siddhartha went off. 
And he actually went off on the evening that his wife was giving birth to his son. Which many people would consider, what a louse doing that type of thing. That wouldn't be very popular today. Probably nor any day. But of course, in those times, you have to also understand that people lived in great communities and that there was so many people in the palace to care for the child and his wife. The story is that Siddhartha was so taken, so on fire, so filled with anguish that the only thing that made sense was to understand the meaning of life. And so he left. And the story goes, of course, after seven years and learning all these different meditative practices, concentration, absorption, self-mortification, so severe that it said you could touch, he could touch his belly and feel his spine bone. And at the near brink of exhaustion, illness, perhaps even dying from such severe self-mortification, he realized the futility of extreme self-mortification. And he decided that he needed to care for himself, and he went off and began to gather some food, had some wonderful gruel by a lovely woman named Sujata, who helped restore his energy. And not so far away, he decided to make a determination and to go to this big, beautiful tree that's known as the Bodhi tree. And he sat underneath this tree and developed a resolution that he was going to stay there till he understood what is this life. And it's said that early into the evening, as he was sitting... He was reflecting on his life and he reflected upon a time when he was a child. And he was sitting at another tree right by a place where some farmers farmers were were, um, breaking the ground for the new new year to plant the crops. And it was one of those Beautiful days, and we've had some incredible days here, you know, like the sun's shining just right, and the blue skies, and the winds are almost like a song. It's just like one of these, like, ugh. And and it was one of those days, and he felt that beauty. And then as he became more sensitive, and just feeling within, the, the young boy, Siddhartha, also was watching the farmers with the oxen and digging the plows into the earth, and as they were cutting in, Siddhartha almost had this feeling of hearing like a wail of worms crying in pain, being cut open by the plow. And it seems this life of ours it has both of these qualities, this unbelievable beauty and this sorrow. So Siddhartha felt both of those deeply, the sorrow and the beauty And he recalled, too, that when he was a little boy, after that experience, he began to just become mindful of his breath in and mindful of his breath out. And he began to practice this mindfulness of breathing under the Bodhi tree, and the rest is history. We've been talking about and working with all week what he discovered under the Bodhi tree, the Four Noble Truths, suffering, its cause, its cessation, and the path. 
it was this quest for truth, this hunger that the Buddha had to come home. So tomorrow we go off into the world, coming back to our homes, but our practice continues. And perhaps you will recognize, just uh, in the same way that um, when you came here, your mind didn't perhaps act too differently than it did before you came, and probably will be similar after you came, in the sense that this mind is this um, character that has its own story. Perhaps we've seen it a little bit more clearly in these days and have quieted down to perhaps even get some deeper insights into our own stories and constructions, the pains that we spin. But the truth is that we bring the world with us. We came from the world. We came to the meditation center. We brought it here. And this is what we work with. So the old saying is that no matter where you go, there you are. This is the practice. I've mentioned before, and I really mean it sincerely, that our life is the retreat. And I know that coming here to Spirit Rock is also very special, that we're really taking some time without a lot of distractions to go deeply into serving and being with our minds and heart and body. But we bring this with us when we leave as well. So in many ways, we can say that our life is the practice, and whatever comes up in our life is the grist of the mill of what we work with. And if we can really understand that and get that, then everything that happens to us in life is a possibility for learning, even when it's hard. And if we can begin to really understand that, that is a revolutionary shift of our consciousness. I just want to read a, a few things from Eckhart Tolle. Where he says, break the old pattern of present, being present uh, and the resistance to being present. Make it your practice to be present. Start by observing the habitual tendency of your mind to want to escape from the present moment. And you'll observe that the future is usually imagined as either better or worse than the present. And if the imagined future is better, it'll give you hope or pleasurable anticipation. And if it is worse, it'll create anxiety. May you remember that both are illusions. Through self-observation, more presence comes into your life automatically. The moment you realize you're not present, you are present. Whenever you're able to observe your mind, you're no longer trapped in it. May we be present as the watchers of our minds, of our thoughts, emotions, as well as our reactions. Be at least as interested in your reactions as in the situation that causes you to react. Notice how often our attention is in the past or future. Watch the thought, feel the emotion, observe the reaction. Perhaps there's not a need to make a personal problem out of them. This is why that I really love the Dharma, the Buddhist teachings. 
In so many ways, it is so practical and down-to-earth and profound. My teacher, Tungpulu Sero, he used to say that the practice of mindfulness appears to be easy, but it's very difficult. You know, bring your awareness to your breath, be aware that you're eating, be aware that you're walking, being aware that you're peeing, you know, pretty easy stuff. It's pretty difficult to stay present to that. He says it appears to be pretty shallow, you know, just being aware of walking, eating. appears to be kind of shallow, but it's actually very profound. Seto would say there's actually four kinds of people who have trouble to meditate. He says those that talk too much, those that socialize and cannot stay alone, those that are sluggish and tired, and those that are always busy, no spare time. He'd often say, if you want to meditate, eat less, sleep less, read less, talk less. <laughs> Perfect for a retreat setting. Difficult when we go back into our lives. How are we going to try to make that time that you have so beautifully carved in this week? You know? Eat less, sleep less, read less, talk less. Sero also said that if you can be mindful for one moment, and one moment in Burmese translation is ten snappings of the finger. Then it is better than to have lived a hundred years without being mindful. We have gathered some moments in this retreat. Sero says, if I am mindful, you around me will become mindful. And that this is a way to bring peace to the world. Just one single act of mindfulness brings others to be mindful. I remember with Landed Sero, my teacher, I had two teachers, Landed Sero and Tumpulu Sero, and I used to love to just go in his room and he'd be sitting in his chair, and I would just sit on the floor. Sometimes I'd lie down, and I would just love to lie there and listen to him breathe. And I would spend a long time there, just listening to him breathe. It sounded to me like the wind. But his breath wasn't just a... It was a... Like, he was so mindful. Like, every breath I could tell, he was... It brought me to such a place of awareness, just being around him. Thomas Merton says uh, in this poem, it's, ooh, it's pretty violent. It's called avoiding violence, but it says to allow oneself to be carried away by the multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone with everything, is to succumb to violence. How do we take care of ourselves and Find the time. Make the time. I love these teachings of the Dharma. It is a practical teaching inviting us firsthand to investigate from our own experience what brings us more sense of ease and peace and understanding and what doesn't. 
This was really up for Hurricane Carter. And he says the most memorable bout, he was actually a, a prize fighter that was falsely accused for murder. He says the most memorable bout I ever had in my life was with myself. I had to fight all the bullshit, all of the arrogance, all of those things. When I was in solitary confinement, I was in a state of hatred. I hated everybody. I hated the judge. I hated the criminal who said I was at the scene of the crime. And I had to come to terms with that. Finally, I had to give it up. And that took a long time. But I knew I had to be free. And that was my mission, to remain free, to stay above the prison system, which is the lowest level of human existence. I wanted to be awake rather than asleep. Sleeping people kill one another. Sleeping people make war on one another. I want to be awake. Hurricane Carter. Tungpulu Sero says, very simply, he gave such simple teachings. He says, the cause of suffering is simply this. That which you cannot conquer is impermanence, anicca. It's the Pali for impermanence. That which you cannot conquer is impermanence, and because you cannot conquer it, there is suffering. What's wonderful about the Dharma is that in these Four Noble Truths, particularly in the second and the third, it speaks about causes and cessation, cessation of the cause of suffering. I believe that Mary Grace um, mentioned in one of her Dharma talks about dependent origination. And what this is about very simply is, is that events arise because of conditions. This is not some type of predetermined event or some random thing of the universe. It, under very specific conditions, certain things arise. It's a chain of causation. And yes, Buddhism is very fond of the lists. Pali is an oral language, and so how these um, teachings went from generation to generation was done orally. That's why there's a lot of numbers, a lot of lists, until eventually it was transliterated into Selene script, about 500 years after the Buddha's death. But independent origination, there's these certain conditions that, that name or describe the causes or conditions that lead to uh, our birth, old age, disease, and death. And you could probably guess that it all begins with ignorance. There's no cloud cloudier than ignorance or no fog as thick as ignorance. And because of this ignorance, it sets up the conditions for volitions and karmic formations and consciousness and name and form and sense faculties, on and on. We could spend a lot of discourses, drama talks on dependent origination. We're going to go through it a little quickly. Seto says, Tamkulu Seto says, in a very abbreviated definition of dependent origination, he says, if you know it, it will break. If you do not know, you will go around and around. This is dependent origination. If you know about the conditions and its causes, you can begin to break them. 
there is a sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya that is the opposite of the dependent origination that leads to birth, old age, disease, and death. And this is called the transcendental dependent origination. Or it's called the Upanisha Sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya. And this particular list is based on specific conditions that lead to freedom, that lead to the end of suffering, that because of emancipation, there is a release of clinging and disenchantment, knowledge of the way things are, concentration, pleasure, serenity, so forth, a list that leads us towards greater peace. That because of certain conditions, if the conditions are present, we can move towards a deeper place of freedom. If they are unpleasant, it can lead to an inevitable cycle of more pain and suffering. To be very simple, the teachings of the Buddha can be summed up from the Dhammapada as to abstain from evil and to purify the mind. One sentence, to abstain from evil and purify the mind, this is the teachings of all of the Buddhas. So I mentioned that my journey in life began early at the age of four when I had my first realization that I was going to die riding in the back seat of my parents' car. This realization, knowing that I was going to die and that anyone could die at any time, and I remember telling my parents this, and they said, oh, don't worry, Bobby. I was called Bobby in those days. You're not going to die for a long, 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 long time. Well, I appreciated their care and their concern, and I actually, at four four years old, knew that they were just trying to be nice and protect me, but I also knew they weren't telling the truth because what I knew was what I knew. And as I mentioned a couple of nights ago, uh, by the time I was 10, I had lost my brother, my best friend, and my grandfather. And this did, of course, lead me on a very confusing journey. And I think I mentioned to you about reading the Tao Te Ching and this epigram of beginning to look, that if I wanted to know about myself, I needed to look inside myself. Well, this journey eventually led me to San Francisco to go to graduate school. And and one of my friends that I was going to school with, I was in an alternative graduate school, the California Institute of Integral Studies, actually Asian Studies at the time. And she said, you might want to try a Vipassana retreat. I said, all right. Where do I sign up? I didn't know anything about it. It was 10 days. I'll go. <laughs> I'll go. And in those days, it was boot camp for Pasana. It's one hour sit, one hour walk. Starting at four in the morning and go to ten in the evening. One hour sit, one hour walk. Well, by the end of the retreat, I had experienced permanent neurological um, brain reconfiguration. (laughs) And I've never been the same ever since. Thank goodness. And it was one of these type of retreats. It was a real sardine can. I mean, it was a small retreat hall and people were packed and I didn't know any etiquette so when any meditation came in I just sat on whatever Zafu was open (laughs) (laughs) 
I was the one that was not enlightened. I was pissing off a lot of people. And I didn't even know. It took me like about six days into it till finally someone said, you know, these, this is, these belong to different people. You've got to find your own place. This person actually breached their silence to tell me because I think I was being such a pain in the you-know-where. I didn't know. Empty seat. I'll go sit there. And then one day, it was really hot. I was also the guy that I needed to do stuff, so there was a wood stove in there, so I'd be tanking that stove up. I used to come from Vermont, you know. I know about wood. <laughs> I got it way too hot in the meditation hall. <laughs> I was... People probably were not liking me there. But... I was having a great time. <laughs> but one day I was sitting there and it was so hot and it was after lunch and I, while I was sitting I fell asleep and I fell over and I flattened the woman that was sitting next to me. That's my first retreat experience. But there was some amazing things that happened to me there and I remember talking with my teacher, Rena Surkar and asked I was so filled with questions I wanted to know everything and I said, but what do I do with my anger, what do I do with all these emotions and all these feelings and she kept on saying to me, acknowledgement will bring you knowledge, acknowledgement will bring you knowledge and I think I had spent up most of my life up to that point, just trying to analyze and trying to separate myself from the experience because those are uncomfortable feelings. And what she was saying and inviting me to do was if you have those feelings, to just allow yourself to experience and acknowledge them. That was really revolutionary for me. And I got so hungry for Vipassana. I started becoming a retreat junkie. And I wanted to, whenever there was a retreat, I was going. And then eventually, uh, Rena invited me to go meet, wanted to meet, do I want to go with her to Burma and meet her teacher and become a monk for a temporary period of time? And it's like, you bet, when are we going? <laughs> and so I saved my money and left in 1980. On November 9th, I still remember that day very well, and off to Burma I went. And I was so excited because I loved this practice so much that I wanted to go to where it was practiced and I wanted to be a monk like the other monks and I wanted to know everything that they know because this was like so amazing, this practice to me. And so I ordained in Tampulucero's monastery, in a forest monastery. And Tampulucero was known as... a He's an incredibly compassionate and wise monk, but as a forest monk, they would also do lots of different, very rigorous practices that are outlined in the Vasudhimaga, the path of purification. They had us doing, as monks, these 13 ascetic practices, and I'll just like to name them. One is, uh, first practice is just accepting whatever robes are given to you to wear as, uh, on, on your body. So you're not like going to ask for robes or purchase robes. Actually, monks are not allowed to handle money. But you just wear whatever's given to you. And you only wear three robes. No extra sets of robes. And you collect alms food. So you go from village to village with your alms bowl. And 
you just stop in front of a person's house. You don't go into their property, but just stop in front. And if somebody wants to offer you food, someone will do that. And if not, you walk on. This was a very powerful practice. Quite humbling to see. This was where where I was. I was probably the only... Many people never saw a Westerner before. And I remember sometimes literally people, like, like they, they could gather, like 20, 30, 40, even 50 people would come from where I have no idea, and they would just stare at me. I was like at a zoo. And then some people would get up close, and they would, like, pinch my hair on my arm. Like, is, like, is this real? How could this guy, this white guy from great America, come to this very remote place the average source of transportation there was ox cart, no electricity, you know, well, you know, water. Um, very simple, no plumbing, of course, anything like that. So we travel from house to house with the alms rounds and eat food in one session, in one bowl, in one sitting. And as a monk, it's considered to be a monk or a nun that you're a field of merit, if you will. And so you don't want to deny someone that wants to offer you food. And so I would go from house to house and accept food. And I was actually a vegetarian, but in the Theravada tradition, you're not, you don't have to be a vegetarian. And they say that, um, that you can accept meat unless you know that someone actually killed the pig or the cow to give it just to you. But I was a vegetarian, so I'd have walk along and somebody would put some rice, then we'd put a vegetable curry, and I'd get all happy and excited. Then all of a sudden, somebody would put like a fish soup, pour it over that, and, and then go along and someone pour some nice vegetable, and then somebody would put a whole bunch of pork on top of that. And, and you know, I can't try to kind of mix my bowl up. And so by the end of the alms wrong, you just have this one big mash of food. But it's given with so much love, with so much faith. It's just... I would cry with the amount of just love and faith and heart. After you take this meal, this is the only food that you eat for the day. And then they also said it practices you're a forest dweller and you stay under trees or the open air. You do cemetery practices in the middle of the night from 10, called the middle watch, from 10 in the evening till 2 in the morning. You take on the any bed practice. Wherever you, they assign you a place, the monk, the elder monks, you stay there. And last and not least, they even ask you if you want to do this, to take on the sitting practice where you vow to not lie down, that you sleep sitting up. My teacher, Tampulu Seto, actually um, didn't lie down for about 50 years. It's kind of hard to even like, imagine that that would happen. I tried it for a few months. And part of these practices, of course, are to help us to develop contentment, to be content with what's here, to have fewness of wishes. It's not like trying to build up like, hey, I'm a great macho ascetic monk here. (laughs) It's really much built on humility and fewness of wishes. I love the Dharma because it's a practice that helps us to recognize where it is that we are. It's filled with knowledge. The 
operative word is awareness and knowledge. And Seto used to say, if you don't know that anger is arising, you're accumulating ignorance. He'd almost have like a little poem. And if you don't know that sadness is arising or, or confusion or greed is arising, then you're gathering ignorance. However, if you do know, so the operative word is if you do know that anger or grasping whatever is arising, you're gaining knowledge. This is a very beautiful teaching. It's not saying you shouldn't be angry, you shouldn't be grasping. The operative is if you are aware of it, you're gaining knowledge. A very beautiful teaching. Makes whatever comes uh, you know, within us is workable. I love the Dharma because all things are possible. We heard the story the other night about Angulimala, who uh, even after killing so many people, he became enlightened. There's a, a modern-day story of a, a modern Angulimala that is so inspiring. His name is Claude Ashin Thomas, and he was a Vietnam veteran. And he was assigned as a machine gunner during the Vietnam War. And he was really into um, killing, because if you got the most kills on a mission, then you can get some heroin or six-pack or whatever drug was available. He got really good at it. By the end of the war, he had killed over 350 men, women, and children. It's hard to imagine. After coming back, became an addict, living out in the streets, homeless, Occasionally seeking help, but most of the time just in such despair. And eventually a social worker took an interest in in him and really tried to help him and somehow convinced him, amazingly enough, to go to a Thich Nhat Hanh retreat that he was offering to Vietnam veterans. And Claudia Shin Thomas went there and had a very powerful experience. And it began an incredible turnaround of a journey. He straightened himself out. He began to practice. Eventually, he met Bernie Glassman, who was the head of the Zen Peacemakers Order. He's a Zen priest, and began studying with Bernie, and eventually he said, I want to become a monk. And Bernie, knowing Claude's background, said, well, there is, I'm going to ordain you, but I have to ordain you in a very um, particular place. And they went to Europe to Auschwitz. And they ordained him at Auschwitz. <sighs> Claudia Shin Thomas had a sense of humor. He goes, and after I was ordained, I took a left. And then I walked for 16 months over Eurasia to Vietnam. It took him a year and a half. And there he began to do his peace work. And he does this to this day. And wherever he goes, whether it's to prisons or to inner city areas or wherever, you know, like, he's like this white guy with robes, like, you know, what the heck do you know as he walks into a prison? And then he starts telling the story because the only way that he can heal, the only way that he can live is tell what it's like to actually have killed 350 people. This is his dharma. This is his practice. He says, make no mistake, when I went into the war and when I was being trained in the army, it was about objectification and that these were not people, they were objects, and they were to be exterminated. That was his training. It's pretty rough what I'm saying here. 
But he knows that, like, to have that type of an experience and then to turn it around, and he's dedicated his whole life to bringing peace. I consider him a modern-day Angulimala. I actually heard him speak one day, and I just bowed to him. And like he's, it's so riveting to be in his presence because it's so alive. And he still says, he's very frank, I still deal with post-traumatic stress. Like it's hard for me to go in the supermarket and even get a can of soup from the shelves. I don't know if it's, it's wired. But he talks about the transformation of the practice. And this is an amazing story. I heard him tell this. He said that one day um, his landlord back in the East Coast, um, he had this house. And his house, his home was a very safe place for him. And unfortunately, the landlord died and left the house to her daughter. And the daughter informed Claudish and Thomas that he was going to have to leave. And Claudish and Thomas got really upset. And, and he was describing, like, the first thing that went into his awareness was he was going to go to a gun shop and get a machine gun and go and shoot and kill her, his wife, her husband, and, his, and her children. And then, then he said, I saw that thought, and I took a breath. Breathing in, breathing out. Then I watched the next thought arose. Well, I, I can't kill the whole family. I'll just kill her. And then he said, oh, okay, take a breath. And then, like, it just goes down. I'm going to go get my key, and I'm going to scratch her car. I'm going to go put sugar in the gas tank. Take a breath. Till finally it came down, taking a breath. I'm angry. I'm scared. I'm here. Some years earlier, that pause would not have been there. He could have easily, impulsively do something horrible. With the Dharma, all things are possible. There's the wonderful story of Ananda, who is the Buddha's cousin and attendant, and he also had a photographic memory. He memorized every single teaching that the Buddha ever taught, and that's why every sutta begins with, thus have I heard. And then he goes on to say what was taught. And you think, how could Ananda memorize all of this? Well, it turns out that about 30 years ago, some monks in Burma decided to take on memorizing the entire Tipitaka. And a friend of mine, Vesaraja, an American monk there, met one of the monks who had actually memorized the whole Tipitaka and and asked him, how long does it take to do it? And he goes, I repeat um, eight hours a day, and it takes me a month and a half to complete the whole Tipitaka. (laughs) Think about the super athlete of the mind. But Ananda had a photographic memory, but unfortunately he was not enlightened. The Buddha had died. There was a council of 499 other full enlightened arahants, beings that were going to be coming to this big meeting, and Ananda was the only one that wasn't enlightened, and what am I going to do? And he was like just frantic, and he was doing all his meditations, and he still couldn't get medi- he couldn't do, get enlightened, and... Finally, there's this moment in exasperation that I just have to get some rest. And he became mindful as he was lying down and his head touched the pillow. And in that moment, he attained enlightenment. And it's, it's really uh, picked upon in the suttas. This is a very curious moment where there's not much recordings of that type of situation happening. Anything is possible in the Dharma. There's even a sutta story that talks about uh, you, Mary, you haven't heard this one. This is a great one. I just remember this today. Of uh, a group of nuns that were, were practicing the 32 parts of the body meditation. And they were inside a monastery and the windows were open and there was a group of birds that were listening. And they began to chant and the birds got enlightened along with the nuns. <laughs> Such is the power of the 32 parts of the body. 
So who knows out there? Like they've been listening. The critters were they roosters? <laughs> were they roosters? <laughs> that that I don't know. I love the Dharma because nearly 13 years ago, actually a little bit over 13 years ago, I should say, I nearly died of a very severe bacterial infection called flesh-eating bacteria, necrotic fasciitis. Fortunately, I'm fine. I have a big whopping scar on my foot. And, um, but it was pretty scary. And um, I had to have multiple surgeries and a skin graft. And you know, when, it, when it was a very quick onset, I, my kidneys were failing. They were thinking I was going to go into respiratory arrest and septic shock. The doctor kept on asking me, how's your breathing? And I would say, breathing in, breathing out. <laughs> and I... <laughs> I um, you know, I, I love a lot of people. I do love a lot of people, and a lot of people love me. I think that's one of the... If you want to be loved, love others. And so there was a lot of love coming towards me and support, and it was wonderful. But there was this whole space between me, myself, and I that was in this experience alone. And as wonderful as it was getting all of this love towards me, I was loving that I had this internal dharma of the Buddha, the dharma, the sangha, the triple refuge. And man, was I like holding on to them with dear life and possibly dear death. If I was going to indeed die, I was going to go with them. And it was really just so incredible to have that type of inner space and support to that deep refuge in the heart. I love the Dharma because it makes me curious to see things clearly. I want to know. I want to understand. It's a beautiful poem by uh, William Stafford. It's called The Way It Is. And he wrote this two days. It was his habit to write a poem every morning. And he wrote this one two days before he died of cancer. He knew he was dying. He says that there's a thread that you follow and it goes among the things that change. But it doesn't change. People wonder about what you're pursuing and you have to explain about the thread. But it's hard for others to see it. But while you hold on to it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen and people get hurt or die. And you suffer and you get old. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding. But you don't ever let go of the thread. You don't ever let go of the thread. So I want to say that your life is your practice. Our lives are practice. That whatever comes up in our lives is the practice. Whether we're diapering our babies, checking the dipstick in the car, washing dishes, being in relationship, everything is part of the field of our practice. As I mentioned earlier, the moment that you become aware that you're not present, well, guess what? You are. It's that close and yet that far. So I think I'll just end with a poem or two. And I know some of you are Mary Oliver fans, and many of you probably know her poem, The Summer Day, where 
She speaks about, at the end of her poem, tell me what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me what is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? It's a great question. What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? She wrote this many years ago, and just very recently she published a new book of poetry, and in it is this poem called Sweet Grass. And to me, it's kind of like she answers that question, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So I'd like to read it for you. Will the hungry ox stand in the field and not eat of the sweet grass? Will the owl bite off its own wings? Will the lark forget to lift its body in the air or forget to sing? Will rivers run upstream? Behold, I say, behold, the reliability and the finery and the teachings of this gritty earth gift. Eat bread and understand comfort. Drink water, understand delight. Visit the garden where the scarlet trumpets are opening their bodies for the hummingbirds who are drinking the sweetness, who are thrillingly gluttonous. For one thing leads to another. Soon you'll notice how stones shine underfoot and eventually the tides will only be the only calendar that you'll believe in. And someone's face whom you love will be as a star, both intimate and ultimate. And you will be both heart-shaken and respectful. And you will hear the ear itself like a beloved whisper, Oh, let me, for a while longer, enter the two beautiful bodies of your lungs. What I loved in the beginning, I think, was mostly myself. Never mind that I had to, since somebody had to. But that was many years ago. And since then, I've gone out from my confinements through difficulty. And I mean the ones that thought to rule my heart. I cast them out, and I put them on the mush pile. They will be nourishment somehow, for everything is nourishment somehow or another. And I, I have become the child of the clouds and of hope. I have become the friend of the enemy, enemy, whoever that is. I have become older and cherishing what I have learned. I have become younger. And what do I risk to tell you this, which is all I know? Love yourself and then forget it. Then love the world. So let's just sit for a minute. So I'm going to end with the wisdom of Dr. Seuss on his message of mindfulness that we can bring home. It's from the places you'll go. Oh, I'm afraid that sometimes you'll play lonely games too. Games you can't win because you'll play against you. All alone, whether you like it or not, alone you will be something quite a lot. 
And when you're alone, there's a very good chance you'll meet some things that will scare you right out of your pants. There are some down the road between hither and yon that can scare you so much you won't want to go on, but on you will go. Though the weather be foul, on you will go, though the hack and cracks howl. Onward up many a frightening creek, though your arms may get sore and your sneakers may leak, on and on you will hike, and I know you will hike far, and face up to your problems, whatever they are, and you'll get mixed up, of course. As you already know, you'll get mixed up with many strange birds as you go. So be sure where you step, and step with care and great tact. And remember that life's a great balancing act. And just never forget to be dexterous and deft, and never mix up your right foot with your left. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.